All right, turn to Mark, or not Mark. It's the first Sunday of the month. We're back in the upper room. John chapter 13, 14. I'll get it right sooner or later. Now, I warned you all last week, I am going to try to wrap our minds around heavier theological material here. When you're dealing verse by verse and you're going through something, uh, a text like this, every once in a while you're going to run into something that needs a little bit of explanation. And I am a little bit intimidated by the subject matter because you run into things that are very hard to parse. And we've run into several of those as we try to march through the Scriptures. And I pray that it will be a blessing to your all's understanding and, uh, and to mine as well. John 14. Now, what we are dealing with is the 13th chapter, uh, again, presents us with this troubling news. Uh, one of you is a betrayer. Uh, Peter specifically is not going to stand, but we know by comparing Scripture with Scripture that uh, that was so with all of them. All of you all are going to be scattered. Uh, you can't trust the arm of flesh. And, um, and I'm going away. Those are the big troubling news. And he opens this chapter by saying, let not your heart be troubled. And then he starts to lay out his mission. You believe in God, believe also in me. That's a profound statement that you should believe on me the same way you have put your faith in God, you should put your faith in me. And that is, shouldn't just be ran over really quick without giving thought to what Christ is saying there. Christ isn't who he says he is, he's blaspheming. Amen? <laughs> now Christ is who he says he is. He was declared to be the Son of God with power by the resurrection of the, from the dead. Um, so we, we, we look at this as fulfilled, uh, a truth here. He says, you believe in God, believe also in me and my Father's house for many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. Uh, I go to prepare a place for you. Where am I? That answered the question, where am I going? Where are you going, Lord? And why can't we follow you? Because I'm going to prepare a place for you. That where I am, there you may be also. He's going to reconcile us. And he says, whether you go, the way, whether you, go you know and the way you know. And Thomas said, we know not whither thou goest, and how can we know the way? Lord, you're just not making it plain enough for us, and we're, you, you're not a very good teacher, <laughs> is, what, is, what, uh, is what Thomas is saying. And then we had the, the summary of Christ's mediatorial work. What is this all about? This whole passage is really about. What is the supper about? Which is the occasion in which this was preached. It's about the mediatorial work of Christ. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but by me. That's the mediatorial glory of Christ. He is exclusively the only way to God. Or as Peter would later sum up, he died to just for the unjust that he might bring us to God. 
but it goes deeper. But that's the main theme that we're dealing with is the mediatorial glory of Jesus Christ. We cannot separate anything that comes, that continues in this context from that main context. That he's going to the Father for us to intercede for us. And he, by that act, is the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus continues, If ye had known me, you, would also, you should have known my Father also. And from henceforth, okay, so there's the rebuke. If you had known me, if you had, if you had learned about me, Thomas specifically, you should have known my father. That, 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 that would have been a direct result of you understanding and knowing me. And here's the point of faith. From henceforth, from this point, you know him and have seen him. From this point forward, you have everything you need. You have been reconciled from this point. Philip, and this is where we left off last week, or last month. (laughs) Philip says to him, Lord, show us the Father and it suffices us. Lord, what you're saying is it's sufficient. Show us the Father. And we talked about the sufficiency of our Lord. And really, we, we started talking about verse 9, but uh, we didn't get deep into it. So now let's get deep into it. Jesus saith unto him, Have I been so long time with you, and yet hast thou not known me, Philip? He that has seen me has seen the Father. And how sayest thou then, Show us the Father? Believest thou not that I am in the Father, and the Father in me? The words that I speak unto you, I speak not of myself, but the Father that dwells in me, he does the work. Works, plural. Believe me that I, that, I am in the Father, and the Father in me. So it's repeated a second time. Or else believe me for the very works sake. All right, some heavy stuff here. So we got to talk about some theology. So Christ, for Christ, all the time that Philip had been with him from the moment of moment John the Baptist first pointed to Philip and to Andrew that he was the Lamb of God to this very point was sufficient. And that's what Jesus says. Have I been so time with you, along with you, Philip, and yet you have not known me? Christ is saying, you knowing me was sufficient for you to know the Father. And it's always been sufficient. Philip has told others, come and see Christ. The one that, the one that uh, he went and told Nathanael there in chapter 1 of John. Come and see Christ. The one whom the Jesus of Nazareth the one whom all the prophets told us about. It's been, he, he was touching on that truth then, but he didn't fully understand it. Since Christ is the mediator, his mediation is successful. And the only unbelief closes the mind. What was Philip's problem? He didn't believe. And actually, Christ, in a sense, is rebuking him for it. 
and rebuking all of them for it. He said, believe me, believe me. And if you won't believe me, believe the works, the very works that you have seen. It's all been sufficient to this point in time. And it's still sufficient. You and I read, this, read what Christ has done. We, we know the validity of what Christ has done. It's sufficient for us to know the Father. So, he was morally and epistemologically, it was morally and epistemologically, that is just this idea of how do you know what you know, unwarranted for Philip to say, what you've done so far is not enough. It is enough. And Christ actually uses a direct quote at the end of verse 9. He quotes him verbatim. How say you then, show us the Father. So he requotes the exact thing, the, the, the exact point of Philip's unbelief. Again, Christ is teaching clearly that he is sufficient. He alone is sufficient. I like the word time here, and I'm just kind of picking around the edges of, the, of what the verse says. Uh, I'm buying myself some time, so maybe I'll seem smarter than I actually am if I say a bunch of things before. But just picking apart the language, have I been so long a time with you? That's, that's this idea of not only a duration of time, but also that opportunity which is given to each person. It's quantitative and qualitative both. A great opportunity has been given you, Philip, for this extended temporal amount of time. And praise the Lord that grace is yet here extended. I don't know how much time we have, how much opportunity we have, but God has given us a dispensation of grace. Note the linchpin here. To know Christ and to see His character is to see the Father. I want to draw our attention first before we go into verse 10 and 11 to what is being said. He that has seen me has seen the Father. So that's the linchpin of what is being said. There is unity between the two. There is unity between Father and Son. Now, how do we understand that unity? Now we're going to have to, we're being forced by Christ to think in terms of the being of God. There are two theological points that are often invoked here in this context. The first, which is heresy, and I'm going to tell you about the heresy. And the second is not necessarily heresy, and there are a lot of things they say that teach the, doc the doctrine that is correct, but it muddies the water a whole bunch. But they're invoked. The first is something that is called, I want to write it down here for you, Modalism. Does anybody know what modalism is? Yes. All right. Yeah. Okay. Very. So, for instance, if I was to say, okay, I'm going to try to explain God to you here. I am a father. And I am also a son 
and I'm also a good friend, all in one person. All right, so that is, that, that is what kind of an idea of modalism, that the persons of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, are just different modes of one person. Does that make sense? A one-man band, yeah. So he's playing all these. So, so right now God's acting like the Father, and then God comes, comes over here, and then he's acting like the Son, and then he's over here acting like the Spirit, and it's all just one person. Now, one of the big believers in modalism is actually, has anybody ever heard of the Oneness Pentecostals? All right, Oneness Pentecostals. So they are kind of the leaders in, in this idea of modalism, uh, where they try, to, they try to say they believe in Trinitarianism. Now, what is Trinitarianism? God in three persons, all right? So, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, three distinct persons sharing one being of God, all right? One nature of God. That's Trinitarianism. One that says there's just this one person, and this one person is playing these different roles or in, is, is exhi exhibited to us in different roles. So when they read it, when modalism, when, when the modalist reads this, they say, he that has seen me is, has seen the Father. Aha, here's our proof text. The Father is the Son. All right. So that's one way that people approach this. And, and like I said, this is, I, I, I apologize that, well, I don't apologize, but we're, we're treading some deeper theological waters here, and, and we're going to have to because we have to deal with this text as it is written. So the modal, modalists will say that He is the Father. The Father is the Son. That's why Jesus says, if you've seen Me, you have seen the Father. Sounds like a really great proof text. And, it's, and, 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 and they will take that ideology and read it into the Scriptures everywhere they can. I'm going to go ahead and say that that is not orthodox. That is not the faith that was delivered to the saints. Mm -hmm. Probably not scriptural. <laughs> Yeah, and, and, and what we're going to find is the text itself doesn't support it because we're going to have to deal with the, what he says in verse 9 with what, says, what is said in verse 10 and 11. And, what I'm, and, and yes, there is a danger, there's a great danger in proof texting. Uh, what, what, why do we believe in the Trinity? Well, we believe, first of all, that there is one God. Amen. How many times does it say, say there's one God in the Bible? Well, 88 times in the Old Testament, right? <laughs> At least that there explicitly says how many, it's a bunch of times in the New Testament. Uh, there's one God. And what's that God's name? Yahweh. Right? Y-H-W-H. Uh, 
That's the name of God in the Old Testament, the divine name of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He says Yahweh. That is, that, that is uh, Lord, cap, all capitals, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D in the Old Testament. That is the name Yahweh. All right, so we get to the New Testament in the perfection of what Christ has revealed in Himself and the Spirit. And we learn that the Father is Yahweh and a distinct person. The Son is Yahweh. He answers to the Old Testament Yahweh in so many ways. And the Spirit is Yahweh or kurios in the Greek. So that's it. Biblically based, we are forced into believing that there are three persons in one God. And they are distinct persons. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Spirit. They are distinct. There are three distinct persons sharing the one being of God, which we call Yahweh. All right, so modalism says, no, there's just one person. They're oneness, ideology. All right, now there's a second, more philosophical position, and I have actually been working through this book by Adonis Vidu for maybe six months now, and it's breaking my head, and it's really hard <laughs> to understand why he's even bothering writing a book. But that's neither here nor there. I've been trying to work through this, uh, through this book of Adonis Vidu for a while because it's become very trendy in theological circles to believe in something that was taught by Thomas Aquinas um, based upon Aristotelian philosophy of metaphysics. And this is called inseparable operations. Now, I am not going to say that this is heresy. I'll say that about modalism, but I cannot say that about it in inseparable operations. But it's built upon this idea that all persons in the, in the Trinity act from one will together in all things. Now, I and just want to touch on this because I don't want to spend too much time on it. So... In this sense, they saw the Father by seeing the Son due to the Son's acts were actually the Father's acts. That there was no difference. This is God acting. And, 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 and they get into some theological, this philosophical stuff to try to explain it, but there's only one God acting in all these things that we see God doing. Muddy the waters, okay? Now, that all sounds good until we start applying some things. When you read the New Testament, what are you going to find? The Son loves the Father. Because one thing we do learn in the New Testament is they are real distinct persons. The Son loves the Father. The Father loves the Son. When it says the Son loves the Father, that doesn't mean the Father actually loves himself. <laughs> or... Uh, the son humbled himself and took upon himself the form of a servant. They say, well, that means the father, son, and spirit humbled themselves. <laughs> no, that meant the son humbled himself. So you run into a lot of texts that create problems. And one thing I'm going to say about the Trinity, it's a mystery. It's not a contradiction. There's a difference between a being and a person. 
you understand that, right? I've heard, I heard James White bring this out before, I think in his book, uh, The Forgotten Trinity. Uh, you, can, you can understand that you are a person, and a rock is a being, and the being is different than the person. All right? So, so, I don't re- so we, we can accept some mystery. I don't understand the Trinity, but the Scriptures tell us there's one God, and three persons answer to that God, that one God. And they are distinct persons. Now, what those that teach about the inseparable operations, that it's always just one God acting in all things. So all three persons are involved in every single act that God does because they all are acting from one single will, which is not necessarily, I'm not, what the danger is, I think, and I, I feel like I'm stalling here and I need to move on to the point and get back to the text. There is no human philosophy that's big enough to describe God. Yeah. And Aristotle wasn't smart enough to figure out the nature of God. In fact, he was an unbeliever. And Thomas, who took Aristotle's philosophy and said, okay, I can use this to describe God, that philosophical system wasn't big enough. I've been praying recently through, I've been making it a point uh, just to help my prayers is to pray through certain scriptures. I try to pray through the Ten Commandments uh, on a day-to-day basis. I try to pray through the Lord's Prayer, the model prayer, uh, and things like Psalm 23, things of that nature. And I've been reaching, as I pray through the Ten Commandments, I reach that second commandment. And I've been trying to pray, Lord, Help me to worship you only as you have revealed yourself and not by something I created or figured out for myself. We talked about a long time for uh, or several years ago about uh, the, the AA theology, uh, the 12-step theology, uh, the God of your understanding. Your understanding is not big enough for God either. And what you end up worshiping is an idol something created by your system of thought, your system of thought. And I've been praying, when I reach that second commandment, I find myself praying, Lord, help me to only worship you as you have been revealed to me. ends up not being the God of the scriptures. <laughs> mm-hmm. Amen. Yep. Oh, no, no, you're, you're fine. Yeah, I mean, there's always a danger of us trying to create an image of God 
and say, well, this is what God's like, is because this is what I understand. Uh, through Amen. Oh, and, and, and you're getting right into my point. What is this context again? What are we talking about in this text? When he says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, what is the major context? Christ, mediation. Christ, in his acts as son, incarnate, humbled, going to a cross, being the way, the truth, and the life, bringing us to the Father and showing us and revealing to us the Father. So it misses the point because when you're reading this text, this text is not meant to just be a, oh, well, let's rip this text out of the con- Oh, If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. This proves my modalism. Or uh, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. This proves my pet doctrine of, a, of, of inseparable operations. This, the context is Christ bringing us to the Father. It's about His meteor. This is not about the Father acting, but it is about the Son being the mediator between us and God. Something we cannot say was an act of the Father, though immediately involving uh, the Father, as we're going to see. The Father is being seen because the Son is showing Him. It's not the Father showing Himself. Jesus was showing them what His Father was like. In redemption, in reconciliation, He was showing Him. This subject-object relationship, we are seeing that the Son has a mission to show us the Father, to reconcile us to the Father, that we who are sinful, we who are are in need, we who are separated from God can be brought to God and know God and call God our Father through the work of the Son, Jesus Christ. So adherence to all this speculative philosophy is not something we should try to jam into a scripture that doesn't necessarily even deal with these subjects. And when, when you do, you, ha- you will find yourself very hard to answer. How do you answer the modalists with inseparable operations? You don't. Christ was not saying here, I'm the Father. Christ never said, he says, I and my Father are one. Uh, that is, uh, we are working together. That's why if you're in my hand, you can't be plucked out. And if you're in the Father's hand, who is greater than I, you can't be plucked out. I and my Father are one together in purpose. But he wasn't saying, I am the Father. And he's not saying, I am the Father here. I haven't even begun to really get into this, and it's already 15th Hill. I'm going to try to do my best to get through this text in the next 15 minutes. So, so this text, my point is, is this text is not making this statement about God's being. It's making something really, it's saying something really true about what Christ was accomplishing. He was showing us, reconciling us to the Father. Christ magnifies His office as the mediator in bringing people to His Father. And it was perfectly efficacious. It was perfectly uh, successful. He did not say that knowing Him was knowing the Father, but knowing Him was seeing the Father. 
Knowing the Son is that which leads us to seeing the Father and essential to um, our reconciliation. Distinctions are maintained between the Son and the Father and the role of the Son in showing us the Father, revealing to us the Father. Now, this is, what, this is a major theme in John. Go all the way back to John chapter 1. We've looked at this text before many times. No man has seen God at any time. Now, who's God here in the first, in the first part? No man has seen God, the Father, at any time. By the way, that means Abraham did not see Yahweh, the Father, Yahweh. But when it says he saw Yahweh, who did he see? Well, the second part tells us. No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. Who did Isaiah see on the throne in Isaiah 6? He saw Yahweh. He saw the Son. That's clear in John 12. He's magnifying his role as the Son, his work as the Son, to make his Father known. Now, all the speculation is dangerous, but it detracts from what the text actually says. I want to get into some minutiae here. I'll try to hurry. But first, before, let's preface it here. Hold your finger in John 14 and go to Matthew 11. I don't want to just, I don't want you to leave here thinking that I'm just dancing around theological issues. I want to bring us to, I want you to bring you to a point where you see something very important about the Father as well. But Matthew 11, we know this famously as a part where he says, Come unto me, verse 28, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. But verse 27, all things are delivered unto me of my Father. And no man knows the Son but the Father. Neither any knows any man the Father save the Son, and he to whomsoever the Son will reveal him. So this isn't just a doctrine that appears in John and nowhere else. This was a doctrine that appears in Mark and Matthew and Luke and all throughout the epistles. The Father knows the Son. What's that speaking of? Well, I, I know Thomas here, right? We're friends. We shook hands three times already this morning. That's a sign of friendship. <laughs> Me and not, we and Thomas know each other. We have a relationship. The Father has a relationship with the Son. He fully comprehends the Son. And the Son has a relationship with the Father. He fully comprehends the Son. And the role of the Son is to reveal that to whomsoever He will. He reveals the Father. The basis of that, now let's get to verse 10. We know God through Christ. I want us to think about this as we celebrate the Lord's table today. What did all of this lead to? us having fellowship with God. I, this wasn't in my notes, but 1 John chapter 1. And what is the basis of our fellowship with God is in verse 10 or 10 and 11. 
which gets even more mysterious, but we have to talk about it. Verse 3, that which we have seen and heard declare we unto you, that ye also may have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. We're getting ready here in about 10 minutes to celebrate the Lord's table. And as we do, as we break the bread, as we take the cup, we are not only just seeing the broken body and shed blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, we are seeing His mediatorial work and we are seeing that which by which we have fellowship with the Father. Going back to our text, what becomes the basis of this? Verse 10. Believe thou that. Now that word that is important because it shows up again in verse 11. Believe me that it's introducing a clause in Greek. It's known as a hati clause. That's a breathing mark there. Hati clause. Which means it's a dependent clause. And this dependent clause is acting as a content clause. So he is telling us, believe you, and that is acting here as possibly a question or possibly just a statement. But then in verse 11, believe me, that's an imperative. And he is giving the contents of this. Believest thou not that... And what follows is a statement of faith given to us by Jesus Christ. Believe this. It's repeated again in verse 11. So twice in two verses. Believe this. I am in the Father and the Father in me. It's a statement of faith given to us by Jesus Christ himself. Now, I got ahead of myself here a little bit. John Gill summed this up. He says, he that has seen, going back to verse 9, he that has seen me, not with the eyes of this body, but with the eyes of the understanding, he that has beheld the perfection, he has beheld the perfections of the Godhead in me, he has seen the Father, the perfections which are in him also. For the same that are in me are in him, and the same that are in him are in me. I am the very image of him and am possessed of the same nature, attributes, and glory that he is he sees one, he sees the other. On what basis? And I think Philip was missing it, and we talked last month about this, this idea that they had. Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, Yahweh is coming to His temple. Yahweh is coming to His people. John, <laughs> Philip misses this. Not Philip back there, but Philip in the Bible is missing this. So what, what does he mean? And Christ gets into this very thing here in verse 10 and 11. So this is a dependent clause, a content conjunction. He is, statement, he is giving us a statement. I am in the Father and the Father in me. Believe this. 
believe this. We, we don't have too many doctrinal statements, and, uh, but here is one given, us to by, given to us by Christ Himself. And He is saying this as the basis for which they see the Father through Him. The basis for which He is the mediator, the way, the truth, and the life that brings you to the Father. The basis is, I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. This is the content clause, something they had failed at this point to believe, they should have believed, and they will believe, because they will now see the Father through Christ based upon His work. So here we have the Christian statement of faith. Man, my goodness, time is running away. I'm going to quit in five minutes, I promise. Barnes said this, this denotes most intimate union. What does this phrase mean? I am in the Father and the Father is in me. This denotes the most intimate union so that the works which Jesus did might be said to have been done by the Father. It implies a more intimate union that can subsist between a mere man and God. Here, there is reference, doubtless, to the mysterious and special union which subsists between the Father and the Son. Jesus Christ talks about that in Matthew 11 that we just read. So it's intended here, why is Christ enough for us to be brought to God? Why is His mediation the only way? It is because of this underlying truth. The revelation of the Father is made possible because the Father and Son are united. In a reciprocal, relational unity, not in some kind of modalism oneness or some kind of weird Aristotelian, Thomistic, inseparable operations, although not saying that there's not some truth to the doctrine of inseparable operations, but because they have a reciprocal relationship with one another. What do I mean by reciprocal relationship? Well, not to get into the minutia, and I told you I was going to struggle today because we're talking about doctrine, all right? I say reciprocal and relational. Reciprocal is, uh, you know, I'm a friend, I have a friendship with Brother Jeff, and he reciprocates that friendship, I hope. (laughs) He calls me his friend too. That's a reciprocal relationship. If Jeff had a flat tire today, I'd come and help him. And if I had a fat tire today, he would pray for me. <laughs> no, he would come and help me, right? But we have a reciprocal relationship. All right, so there is a weight of words that this stuff cannot bear when you get to this statement of faith. Now, I'm not going to get into the Greek, but there are two things I want to say. There are in the Greek different cases of nouns. There is a subject. You all know what a subject of a sentence is, right? I hit the ball. I am a subject, right? I am the su- I is the subject of that sentence. 
That's called the nominative case in Greek. Now, I hit the ball. The ball is the direct object, right? In the Greek, that word ball would be something called the accusative case. I hit the ball to Tom. Now, Tom becomes something in English called the indirect object. Does that make sense so far? I'm not trying to do an English class, and if so, Jenny could probably get up here and do much better. So, in Greek, that indirect object is something called the dative case. Now, the dative case is not simply just an indirect object, but it is something that describes special interest. In this sense, I hit the ball to Tom is not just, it's not about me hitting the ball. It's about me doing something with Tom. Does that make sense? Now, that's what we have here. Christ says, I, the subject, am in the Father. Now, that is a good translation because it's translating a mysterious thing. Now, what it is, but the Father here is not a direct object, but he's the, he is the, in the dative. And then it switches around. Then he says, the Father, who's now the subject, is in me. Christ speaks of himself as the subject, and the Father as he to whom he has a special interest towards. And then he says it vice versa. What, so whatever may be rightly affirmed about the unity of God, I want to say this. The Son is able, by an act of will, to hold the Father as his object of interest and the Father the same. What does that mean? We're describing a relationship between persons. And we get that a lot in the New Testament. The Son loves the Father. The Son prays to the Father. The Father glorifies the Son. You have this all over, this distinction of purpose. So they are able to act with each other as their objects. The Son submits to the Father. And this becomes an absurdity when we get wrapped up in all this silliness about philosophy and we're trying to fit God into this philosophical system or we're trying to say that we're dealing with one person just acting in different ways. That, that's not what Christ is. That's not the weight of words that Christ has here. John Gill again, these phrases are expressive of the sameness of nature by the way, this is an amazing thing. Christ is even saying this. Can you imagine me saying, well, I'm in God and God is in me? <laughs> that's, that, that's, a, that, that's, that's something. He was saying there's a sameness of nature in the Father and Son, of the Son's perfect equality with the Father. Since the Son is as, much, is as much in the Father as the Father is in the Son, and also of a personal distinction there is between them, for nothing with propriety can be said to be in itself. The Father must be distinct from the Son who is in Him, and the Son must be distinct from the Father who is in Him. The Father and Son, though of one and of the same nature, cannot be one and the same person. 
I know you're saying, Jason, why does this even matter? Well, it matters because of what it means. And I'm, I'm going to stop here. Now, there's different ways to, to deal with this data. It could be spatial. They're in the sphere of one another. It could be associative. They're relational, they were relationally with one another. Or possessive. They possess one another. Now, there's other ways the data can be taken in this instance, but those are really the three best options. And the best way I believe that we can look at it is simply this. The, media, the mediation of Christ is successful with us because they are united. We are indeed seeing the work of God played out in the relationship with Father and Son. They are united in nature. They are united in their work. We get over to the first John chapter 2, and it talks again about the mediatorial sacrifice of Christ. And what does it say? If we sin, we have an... Where? With the Father. That's important. The Father is part of this work too. And we're morally responsible to make this confession our own. That the Father and Son are united together in their work. We, why is He such a great advocate and intercessor for us? is because He's with the Father, and the Father is with Him. They are in the same sphere. They hold one another as objects of special interest. The Father loves the Son, the Son loves the Father, and when the, Father, when the Son comes interceding for you and me, the Son's successful. And that's why when we get to Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25, and I, I know you're all yawning, <laughs> and ready to stop, stop with the theology already. But when you get to Hebrews 7.25, it says, he, is able, he, Christ, is able to save to the uttermost them that come to God by him, seeing he ever lives to intercede for us all made possible because of the nature of the Son and the nature of the Father being in one another. I'm going to stop there, but, and we'll pick up again. I'm, we've dealt with the heavy theology when we get, come back to this, when we break bread again the first Sunday of next month, which I forgot to say uh, Juanita's going to make burgers for us that day, so it's something, something to keep in mind, but uh, we'll, we'll pick up with the practical side of this. But I hope that this, that this was helpful. What we see is a relationship, a reciprocal relationship of father and son. The father sent the son, and the son went. The son went to Calvary, and he interceded for us, and the father accepted they were working together, holding one another as the object of their love and affection, 
and bringing us into that fellowship, that fellowship that we now have with the Father and with the Son. I know that may be muddied water talking about heavier theology, but I hope you receive something. And now we will prepare to take the Lord's table.